Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My guest today is Michael Danello. Michael entered the national blues scene as a member of the Radio Kings and went on to perform and produce several critically acclaimed records including Eddie Loves You So by Eddie Floyd and Feel Like Going Home, a tribute to Charlie Rich. Welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour, Michael. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Oh, well, thank you so much for, you know, having me come by. I'm just really looking forward to this. So, a few months ago, I had Ed Hurt as my guest. And Ed was actually the one that put the two of us in touch about half a year ago. Yeah, something like uh, that. You, you've been spending more and more time down here in Nashville. And Ed was like, you need to meet my friend Michael and we instantly had a had a really nice lunch where we yeah both that was uh, about half a year ago yeah I would yeah. say so and yeah. we both obviously love music and mm -hmm. we ha have our you know we love the roots and I'm sure we'll talk about that more too but sure. uh you grew up in Ohio yeah what was some of your first like memories connected to music Oh, boy. Al Hurt, the trumpeter, yeah, was one of my first guys that I really loved. I was probably like two or three. Um, then Al, uh, Herb Alpert was next. I was obsessed with the Tijuana Brass. Had the records when I was a kid, when I was like four, going on five. And then I discovered Elvis when I was five. So that would be 1971. And I was just fanatic. And I still am, you know, I still love Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> Memphis, everything. Um, so I loved um, Elvis so much that I convinced my parents when I was eight years old to take me to see him at the Cleveland Music Hall. And uh, I still remember them starting to show in the spotlights and, you know, I don't remember all of it, you know, eight-year-old brain isn't going to remember all this stuff but you know it left a pretty powerful impact on me even then you know I would you know pretend to be Presley in front of the mirror and I tried to figure out how to make my own silly jumpsuits <laughs> yeah you know it's interesting too because like some of the guys that are maybe around 20 years older than you they talk about how the Ed Sullivan show we either Elvis or the Beatles sure. changed their life. Was that a little bit of moment for you like that? I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say per se that it was. I was really, really into music, and I stayed that way. And and when I was old enough, I started playing trumpet in school because um, I, I was a small kid and. My father had an old arch top that he bought 
before I was in the picture that I think he played twice and put it under the bed because it was too hard for him to do. So I was always pulling it out. But I was a small kid, and it, it was it's a big guitar. And um, I was too small for me to actually, you know, play it. Uh, so I started with trumpet, and then I picked up guitar around 12. And as soon as I started playing guitar, that was it. That's that's when I was just really, really obsessed with it. Um, into high school, I continued to play trumpet. Um, and I also started playing euphonium, and I played tuba and uh, sousaphone. Uh, tuba in the concert band and uh, sousaphone in the marching band. So. I had all this music around me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I was const constantly discovering stuff. Um, not a very musical household. My 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 parents weren't into it at all. Um, I mean, they'd listen to... I'm not sure that they're even on the radio anymore, but those really saccharine, sappy, instrumental remakes that they would call easily listening or whatever they used to call it. Yeah. So that's what they listened to. And I was... So I kind of had to discover all this stuff on my own, which, uh, you know, I think in a way it was better because when I f found something, it was through all these different channels and, you know, I was reading guitar magazines and so um, I would figure out who these guys were talking about and then I'd go to try and find records, which was not easy to do in rural Ohio trying to find a Magic Sam record. It's just not going to happen. So, so I didn't really get into those records until I moved to Boston um, when I was 18. But I was always looking for records. And you could find BB King records and stuff like that. So I had all that stuff. My cousin is about somewhere between 12 and 15 years older than me. So he had seen cream and clapton and all that stuff so he gave me those records because he didn't listen to them anymore so i had kind of latched onto that stuff too and then the stones i was a huge stones fan um more so than the beatles come around to the beatles later in life but back then it was the stones and then uh yeah so music was always very integral to to what i was doing all right who i was um yeah. well it still is <laughs> absolutely and how long did it take you to start your first band or join your your first I band? joined my first band when I was 15 in high school and uh, the guys were all older than me and you know I had only been playing a couple of years I just got my first electric guitar but I was obsessed with it and you know we were it was you know the early 80s but we were all really into the 70s you know bluesy bluesier rock stuff excuse me, Steppenwolf, um, you know, those kind of things, as, as well as playing, trying to play blue stuff and, you know, I don't know, Sweet Home Alabama, all that stuff. Um, our very first gig, I was 15, maybe just barely 16, and we were playing in a biker bar in Ohio. And the guys were older than me, the drummer was a year older, but then the, the lead singer was maybe three or four years older and uh we're playing and you know i don't know if you have a lot of experience uh hanging out in biker bars but you know to the bikers if they don't talk to you 
or don't acknowledge that you're playing, you're doing a good job because then you're basically the live jukebox that they're looking for. And uh, like I said, it was my first gig, but I knew enough that, you, you know, you just didn't cross these guys. <laughs> and so the lead singer, who was kind of cocky and, you know, he was kind of a punk and envisioned himself like a Joe Strummer or Mick Jones, you know, goes, boy, we got a lot of dead meat in here tonight. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is my first gig and it could be my last gig. <laughs> but, you know, I think that they found it kind of comical for whatever reason and figured that, it, well, he's got a lot of balls talking to us like that. So I think it was kind of a notch in our belt with them. And they left us alone, thankfully. <laughs> and then uh, I went after I moved to Boston. I, went, I was in school for about a year or a year and a half and I started my first band in Boston. Was there any particular moment where you realized, well, that could be a life in music or a career or is that something that kind of gradually developed? For oh, you? I think I think it was always there. Um, and I think it was always something I secretly wanted, you know, in the back of my brain. But, you know, you're ingrained to go to college and get the big degree and I was going to go to Ohio State, and I was going to be an electrical engineer and go to the master's program and all that stuff. And I was like, well, you know, I really love math. That, that could be kind of cool. Still find a way to play music. Or went to Florida with my friend Pete, who was a drummer in my uh, first band in Ohio. And I didn't bring a guitar with me. It was the first time that I had not had a guitar in my hand in, a, uh, in just a week's time, in years and years and years. And I was like, I was not a happy person and um, because of that very fact that I couldn't just start playing and you know do what I wanted to do so I got back home and I told my parents I'm not going to Ohio State <laughs> I don't know exactly sure what I want to do but I think it has to do with music and I'm just not going to Ohio State and eventually uh, I found out about Berkeley and applied and all that stuff and that's how I ended up in Boston Were your bandmates of the band you soon joint were they uh, fellow students of yours or how did you get connected with those musicians in Boston in Boston oh uh, yeah they were all they were all at school I think and then as I got older I was starting to be I was you know able to go out to the bars and hang out and watch people you know meet Ronnie Earl and you know all these guys that were still living in Boston a room full of blue sugar ray and blue tones luther guitar junior johnson um so i started going seeing these guys play and then i started going to blues jams and then i started running into guys and little by little i started sitting in here sitting in there and then i got involved with my very first band um that was serious i think it was it was either 87 or 88 i think it was 88 and uh, they they weren't well. The drummer was from Berkeley, but uh, the guy that played harmonica and sang wasn't. Um, so we just had a little trio. I played guitar. The drummer just played snare drum, and uh, Chuck, who was the harp player, sang and played harp in the same mic. Okay. And we had these little battery-powered amps, um, and we would go out on Boston Common and play for six hours a day, six days a week, for tips. 
turns out was a really good introduction to playing for tips now here in yeah. Nashville. <laughs> yeah, but um, but that's, I, yeah, so I was 20. Yeah. And so that's that's, that's really how I pulled my chops together. I mean, I knew I wanted to do it. Yeah. But we were playing Chicago blues, uh, Slim Harpo stuff. You know, it's a harp, you know, harp, harp stuff. Yeah. And then, but we had know, a small repertoire, so... You're playing for six hours. You have to figure out how to entertain people, too, because some of them are going to hear you, you know, especially because we were always there at lunchtime. And if it was a nice day, they'd come out and they'd eat their lunch. And, uh, you know, at some point they're going to hear the same song or, you know, you got to find a way to maybe present things differently or something. <laughs> when you're play basically you got a repertoire of 40 songs or so. And you're playing six hours a day, six days a week. Those songs, are, you know, A, you don't want yourself to get bored. You know, so we had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. It brought us out on the road, too, for the first time. We just packed up and went to Memphis and went and played on the street in Memphis. And that's, you know, an important time in a musician's life, I think, to be able to really hone your craft for a while. Oh, sure. Kind of what the Beatles did in Hamburg or, yeah, or something yeah. like that. I w you know, I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right, you know. Uh, you, you, when you can spend that time doing that exactly what you said yeah and it's probably also kind of like where it kind of weeds out some of the people because it's really hard work in a way and you have to have that dedication to make it through that otherwise you might choose a different profession well you gotta want it you know and the people that want it you know they're there for the for the long haul so yeah, you're right. It probably does weed some people out. So you mentioned uh, guitar Junior Johnson earlier, who was in Muddy Waters band in the '70s, and uh, another Muddy Waters alumni. You just told me before we started recording, uh, Cherry Portnoy, his harp player. Mm -hmm. You got connected with him too. Yeah, through the Boston scene. Um... I ended up being Jerry's roommate for a couple of years, which was great because at the same time I was being Jerry's roommate, I was out playing on the street and doing all this stuff. So it all like kind of, you know, came together and um, coalesced into more and more of what eventually has me doing what I'm doing now. Um, and you ended up playing on one of his albums too. Well, yeah. Um, so <laughs> funny story is before I was roommates with him and before I even really knew him, Myself and Brian, who ended up being the singer for the Radio Kings, we auditioned for his band on the same day, and neither one of us got the gig. Um, and then, uh, you know, I was still roommates with Jerry, and I, I put the Radio Kings together with Brian after a couple years' time. There's actually a couple years' difference in that time period. And, um, and that's how we actually ended up uh, playing on Jerry's record. Um, it's the Home Run Hitter record, and I think that's the title of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, we were out on the road with him in 92, and he had written some songs. And at the end of the tour, he had a buddy in Washington, D.C., who had a studio, and the van broke down. So we ended up having to go to D.C. to have the van fixed, so while we were there... Um, We went in the studio, and I think there's three songs I'm on, if I'm not mistaken. And we had been playing them live 
for almost a year. So we got in and out pretty quick. And then uh, back to Boston, and then he got the call from Clapton. And uh, I was kind of on my way out the door anyhow with him and his band. I wanted to start pursuing other things. Um, but then he got the call for Clapton, and Brian and I then reformed the Radio Kings, and then we went on to the rest of the 90s to do what we did with two records in Memphis and a record for Rounder. Yeah, so you mentioned the harp trio you had before. Was that an early version of the Radio Kings, or is that can you mind something completely no, different? No, no, it was completely different because it was really a study into... Um, Chicago blues and um, like Sonny Boy Williamson and Little Walter and and those guys, uh, the first Sonny Boy to, you know, uh, whatever his name was, not Rice Miller, but the other one, John Lee Williamson. Um, uh, Big Papa Lightfoot, uh, all those guys that recorded, you know, blues stuff for Excello. So it was more like that and, and uh, when we started the Radio Kings, Brian hadn't even really played any harmonica. So it was just a, a four-piece band with a stand-up singer, guitar, bass, and drums. So it really fell on me to search out material. And we, we played more Texas style at that point. You know, we got, we got tagged as being the Thunderbirds clone all the time, which got really annoying. <laughs> it was probably true. Um, but uh, The need, need for the media to to brand you or label you oh, somehow. Yeah, it was, well, you know, there, there's 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 a certain truth to that. I mean, I think every band of that time period that was a four-piece blues band was taking something from the T-Birds because they had done something that hadn't really been done quite the way they were doing it. And successfully, And too. very successful. And uh, so, you know, everybody kind of took a little bit from that and then went from there, so. So, yeah. It, 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 the, the the little trio which was called Sidewalk Blues Band because we were playing on sidewalks <laughs> it was the it was the foundation for all that stuff and it's funny I go back to a lot of that stuff now and pull it out and listen to it on the Chicago stuff and I went through a period where I didn't listen to it at all for very much and and I forget the genius of some of it um, I'll tell you a funny story uh, so the second time we went to Memphis with the Sidewalk Band um, we had picked up a stand-up bass player, and it was November, and it was kind of cold and misty. It was when they were still doing the Handy Awards, and when they were still called the Handy Awards, in November. And Beale Street was nothing, even like it was just a few years later. The only club was the the Rum Boogie, maybe Alfred's. B.B. Uh, King's didn't exist, Blue City didn't exist. That whole part of the street up that way was all boarded up. There was okay. nothing there. It was it was really something. And so we're standing there playing on the street, and we're doing little Walter tunes, and we're doing Sonny Boy Williamson tunes. And so I'm copping all these Robert Lockwood guitar riffs, playing all this harp stuff, you know. And I'm playing with my head down. And I look up, and there he is standing in front of me with his arms crossed, just staring at me. So now I'm starting to shake in my boots, because here I am, you know, imitating this guy, playing his licks. 
behind on these songs and he's just staring at me and i don't know if you ever spend any time with him but he had this stare under those eyebrows he had he would just furrow his brow and he would just stare and um we finished playing because it started to rain we got one to get everything packed up and he kind of came up to me and uh I, I was nervous, you know, I'd never met him before. I think I had seen him play in a club or something, but I had never met him. And uh, he kind of looks at me and he goes, boy, you play pretty good, but stop playing my shit and get your own. And he walks away. <laughs> so we're playing with the Radio Kings at King Biscuit in 1995 in Helena. And Robert was always a part of the festival. He was there every year. And he was backstage with our manager at the time. Um, I think Bob Harding from Memphis. Uh, Bubba Sullivan, who used to have a record store in Helena. Um, Anson Funderburg and Robert Lockwood. And they're all sitting at a table. And I walk into the tent. You know, this is now six or seven years later from my initial meeting of him on Beale Street. And I walk up to him. And I get ready to introduce myself to him. And he looks up and he goes, boy, did you get your own shit yet? <laughs> so he remembered. And uh, everybody in the tent laughed. <laughs> and I laughed too. So the Radio Kings lasted for about four or five years? Oh, no. We, we, well, we, were for, we formed in 1990. And even though... When we were with Jerry Portnoy, we weren't called the Radio Kings. It was the Radio Kings. He just, he didn't want to use our name as his band name. So we stayed together. And then the band split up in uh, February of 99. We did our last runs of shows. Um, we tried to put it back together again in 2005, and it didn't really work. The same idea, same reasons <laughs> the band split up and the first time we're still there. It was just a few years later. Then in 2008, we recorded a record of new stuff, and we tried again, you know, to have another go at it. But Ryan and I are just too different, too different at that point in time. So, you know, the band is, I got lots of fun memories, but uh, it's kind of, you know, it's uh it's in the past so yeah. is three studio records in the live record yes yes um it was also the start of my affiliation the radio kings with the phillips family in memphis which i continue to this day um, johnny phillips is one of my best friends in the industry and uh, we don't see each other nearly as much as we used to um, but we do talk all the time and well uh, while you talk about that we should maybe jump ahead a little bit in time sure. and talk about the Charlie Rich tribute you've been involved with that was released about a year ago? Two years. Two years ago. And that you were involved and the Phillips family was involved and a lot of it was recorded at their studio in Memphis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was in my well, it was 20 or 21 and I got the Peter Gronick books and they have the chapters on the first two books have the chapters on Charlie Rich and I had kind of remembered hearing Charlie Rich going up in Ohio in the 70s but I read the chapters 
and without even having gone out and found the music yet, which was easy to do. I found all these used records in Boston. I think I went and bought 20 in one shot. Um, I would just, I was like, wow, this guy just sounds like he's the greatest. I got the records and I started listening to them obsessively. And he became my favorite artist of all time and he still is. And uh, so we made the Charlie, we uh, feel like on home record in 2016. Um, so it's about, been out about a year and a half. It came out in October of 2016. Um, but for a, a good year, I mean a good 10 years, I'm sorry, for a good 10 years before that, um, I had been wanting to make a record on Charlie Rich. Um, I hate the term tribute records, but you know, it, it is what it is. <laughs> uh, but my idea behind the record was uh, not to just find 10 or 12 or 15 artists and say, you know, send me a Charlie Rich song that you like. Because I've got so many records like that in my record collection, I'm sure you do too, but they don't sound like a record. Yeah. Because they're cut in different studios, they're cut with different bands. Uh, one studio might be $1,000 a day, somebody might have spent $50 a day in their bedroom, and you know, so it, it's, it might be a great collection of artists and their songs, interpretations, but it doesn't sound like a record. So my one criteria when I first started thinking about it was, <clears throat> however many artists I get, they all have to play me in front of the same band. Um, so it sounds like a record. And so I actually tried to start it in Boston in like 2008 and the studio flooded. So that was the end of that. And then I had some health issues which sidelined me for a while and that was the end of that. I tried to do it again. And Johnny Phillips and I, you know, had been talking about it on and off for years. And um, he said that he and Knox had spent a lot of time talking about it as well. And uh, it was something they had always wanted to do as well. And I kind of, you know, I let Johnny know my ideas behind it. Um, and then he called me up out of the blue one day. It was, I think it was November of 2015. And he's like, let's do it. We're just going to do it. We're going to we're going to get the money. Um, we're going to cut it here in Memphis. They're 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 real rebuilding the studio. You know, most of the stuff that Sam put in there is still there. Um, so let's just go do it. And as we started to talk about it more, um, I realized that we were going to use the whole band, but it was going to be impossible to get everybody in the studio in front of the band or along with the band, you know, with 12 or 13 artists, you know, it's just, that's tough to do. Um, especially when, you know, like shooters in LA, <laughs> you know, people are all over the place. So we cut all the basic tracks in Memphis with just making little notes and then playing them. And I tried to keep it as fresh as possible. I didn't want to rehearse a song, you know, time and time and time again. Um, to get the perfect take. It's like, in fact, we did three takes of um, Rebound. And the very first take when nobody even really knew the song yet was by far the best one. In fact, we were sitting, listening to the playback of that song in particular. And Jerry, Jerry Phillips came up to me and goes, you were levitating out of your seat on that one, weren't you? <laughs> so 
we did it that way. And then, you know, I did different overdubs in Nashville and Los Angeles and Boston. And I think we did not, don't think we did anything outside of those three cities for overdubs. But so that was kind of like the German. The idea of the whole record was to make it sound like a record. You know, it was a band with 13 lead singers, the way I look at it. Yeah. <laughs> so this particular record is one of your most recent productions. Yep. Now you're, I would say, it's fair to say that you're as much known as a producer than you are as a musician. Now, how did that come about? From, like, you so, know, taking the detour into producing what were some of your first forays into that well this the third radio kings record uh, money road the one we did for rounder was the first one that i produced and um even the first two radio kings records we had done so much pre-production even though we weren't necessarily credited as producers i had already started to read about producers both in, in what was then my modern day, and then of course Phil Spector and Sam Phillips and Billy Sherrill and all these guys. So I already, even though my primary focus was playing guitar and writing songs and being a band leader for a band that ended up touring 250 days a year, it doesn't leave you a lot of time to go produce records. <laughs> um, I had already kind of started thinking about that. And uh, so when we did the last Radio Kings record of that time period, we produced it. And as the band was kind of coming apart at the seams, I had already started to think about other projects and other things I wanted to do. And um, as the band was wrapping up, I went into the studio and cut <clears throat> a bunch of songs that ended up being on my first EP almost 20 years later. Um, I had recorded the stuff and it looked like I was gonna get a record deal with Ryko Disc and then Ryko Disc got bought and everything fell apart. And that kind of all fell apart. And then I got asked to join uh, Barron Whitfield and the Savages. So then I became a savage. And when the Savages kind of fell apart again, Barry and I stayed working together. And I had started to write a lot at that point. And it was very acoustic music. And uh, I definitely had serious production ideas with that one. And um, so yeah, and then as that was all coming together, I was working in the Cambridge folk scene a lot, and I got involved with some of the guys up there producing records. And I kind of made it, let I let it be made known that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and so then I got, you know, some producing gigs in Norway, and spent a lot of time in Norway, and then more in Boston. And then just little by little, I built up this catalog of records I've produced over the last 15 years or so. And it's really my main focus. I mean, I love playing guitar, um, but I love being in the studio producing records. <laughs> and there have been quite a few recent production of yours where you were able to actually wear both hats too. Yeah, yeah. well, I think pretty much on, for the most part on every record that I've produced, I have also at least played half of the guitar, so. Um, I can do it without the guitar in my hand, but it, it's I love playing guitar on the records too, you know, yeah. and it saves you from having to hire somebody else. <laughs> so uh, you're talking about Baron's Whip and that connection. How did that 
lead to the Mercy Brothers? Well, I had songs that I had written, and before the Savages fell apart, and right after I, I had recorded the stuff for Ryko Disc, the demos, that, and as that fell apart, we went into the studio in Boston um, with Tom Hambridge producing um, a Baron Switfield record and a Savages record. And so we chose a couple of my songs that ended up on Crooked Road songs for that project. Some, some great stuff that Tom brought up. And then, you know, just all the crazy covers that Barron's comes up with out of the blue. And we recorded a full record and it, it never got finished. And like I said, the Savages were kind of falling apart at that time. And so Barron's and I stayed working together and, you know, he had already done the Tom Russell records. So he was kind of into that whole Americana before it was Americana anyhow. And and I was going in that direction really seriously. And so we just, we realized that together we made a really great team. And I started writing songs specifically for his voice and his capabilities and uh, looking through catalogs, you know, for covers, cool covers that we could do that a lot of people had never touched. And uh, we did the Mercy Brothers record and it was, it was a smash in, in Norway. It was huge. We were huge. We were touring over there all the time, playing festivals. We were playing big festivals in, in on the continent in Europe. We were going to London. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's how that all came together. And we were working with a great guitar player over there, Vitor Busk, who ended up going on to do some of his other stuff. He was already a big star over there. So it was, it, it was kind of this weird melting pot of all this different stuff which is kind of what how I've kept it to this day. You know, I'm always like trying to cross-pollinate everything I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I love playing with the guys that I'm playing with here, you know, in Nashville. So I kind of get them to try to be involved in other things I'm doing that might not necessarily be just in Nashville. Or um, my some of my friends up in Boston, I try to keep them involved with stuff I'm doing, you know. Um, so I just, it's just all about being a ringleader <laughs> you know I like to produce records in such a way that I have ideas of what I want the record to sound like or feel and depending on who the artist is or what they're doing I'll pick the guys that I think would do the music do my ideas the, the way I want it to sound without me having to say to them play it like this or play it like that or don't do this or don't do that you know I like to pre-product the songs so they have demos I never hand out I know a lot of people do but I never hand out full production pre-production demos of songs because the last thing I want these guys to do is to come in with some preconceived idea even if they can see past it I don't want them to think about it I want them to just hear an acoustic guitar and a voice and come in and say, oh, I think it should go like this. And I'll be like, hey, cool. I love that. I didn't really think of that. But that's that's even more perfect than what I had in mind. You yeah, know? and that's how I look at production too. It's, it's about the casting of characters yeah. who can bring 
something to life in a way they only they can or they uniquely can yeah and hopefully contribute more to it than you could conceive in your head that's the whole yeah yeah exactly i mean those are the greatest producers in my book you know i had a friend of mine in boston who's a he's a great producer he's a great songwriter great singer oh man i gotta get what you do on, on a record I, I, I got one song that you're just going to be perfect for and i want you to come in and i said well i don't have a lot of time i can come in after my gig this weekend and i get to the studio at like one o'clock in the morning and uh um, he's like he plays me the song and i said okay well okay i got a couple ideas right off the top of my head and i start playing he stops no, 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 no. I said, well, what's wrong? You don't like the part? No, I love the part. Don't put any vibrato in your hand. I said, well, man, that's that's part of just how I play. I mean, I don't know if I'm ha how I can just turn it off, you know. And he said, no, 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 you can do it. You can do it. So it's, it's like a three-minute song. And here it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and we haven't even got through a whole take yet because he's stopping me. Say no, do it like this. Finally, at one point, I took the guitar off and I handed it to him. And I said, "You just play it. You can play my ideas and my parts, but you just play it because you asked me to come in and play like me, and that ain't me." <laughs> and he insisted that I finish the track out, but I, I still listen to it to this day. I'm just like, no. That memory is connected to the listening experience now too. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so I try to avoid that. I don't want to do that with the guys I work with. Unless, like I said, I hear something very specifically that I want done or I want to change or something. But for the most part, it's like, get the guys, get the studio, hit the studio, just cut. Yeah. You get some magical records that way. Another one, and you, you briefly mentioned it before, is, is one you do, did recently called Crooked Road Songs, which is credit, credited to you and friends. Yeah which I imagine came about pretty, you know, kind of like you, you just described it. Well, yeah, it came about, that's the stuff I'm talking about that was cut um, between the Radio Kings for Ryko Disc that never came out. And I had a bunch of guys that I wanted to play with, and I had very speci specific ideas of songs and things I wanted to try. And I wanted it to feel like a big live band. And... I had always been the only guitar player on the records that I had played on, so I had overdubbed all the parts. And I wanted to, I mean, I could have done that, but I wanted to go in with two other guitar players who were both really good friends of mine and just have the three of us play together and everybody play rhythm guitar, you know? <laughs> not that Nothing was like, scripted out well you play lead or you do this you do that we just went in with the songs we started playing and um we just kind of rolled the tape and and we just captured how it came out i think there's only two takes of every song and we just chose the best one and and finished off a little bit of stuff over top but it's all completely live um the drums the guitar amps everything in the same room so there were no fixes. Uh, the background vocals were live. The guys were one guy was playing upright bass and singing into a mic, so everything was there. And Kevin was playing acoustic guitar and singing back up. So every you know, so everything it was just like there's no separation. It was like there were no fixes, 
and uh, I, you know, there's there's little things here and there that, you know, I'm sure somebody could pick at and say, oh, you should have fixed that. But the whole idea was not to fix anything, just to get a band as live as possible. Yeah, and here in Nashville, once a month, you kind of take that concept to the stage. You call it Crooked Road Songs as well. Yeah. And you have different people joining you every month. And one of those people is Kevin Gordon, who is a personal favorite of mine. Kevin's awesome. <laughs> How did you meet Kevin and got him involved in that project? First time I met Kevin was not in person. It was over the phone. We, the Radio Kings on the Money Road record, we were looking for songs. And so this would be 1996 or 97, somewhere in that time period. And I had been in contact with Buddy Flett in Shreveport. And I said, man, do you got any songs kicking around that you could send to us and and uh, maybe uh, we'll cut one of them, you know? We could song. go down a whole rabbit hole there with A-Train and Egan and all that good <laughs> oh, yeah. stuff. And yeah. he's, Kevin is, yeah, that's yeah. the connection. So And so he's like, oh man, you know, I don't have anything right now, but I got a great friend of mine who's living in Nashville. Why don't you call him up, see if he's got anything. So I called Kevin up and I introduced myself. And uh, he sent me, I think it was his first EP. And I loved it. But we just never got around to, to cutting anything. It was a little too singer-songwriter for Brian. So, so that was my first introduction to Kevin. And then I actually didn't meet him in person until 20 years later. We had traded some emails some Facebook messages, that kind of stuff. I'd always missed him when he was playing Boston or stuff. But so it was, it was just a couple years ago that we actually connected in person. And man, I just love playing guitar with him and hanging out with him. And uh, he's just such a good dude. <laughs> he's really something. So last week I came out and saw you guys perform that and I was really just immediately drawn to to the concept which is like and we talked about that before too but you know it's it's loose on one hand and funky but not to the point where it falls apart and it's kind of a mix that here in Nashville unfortunately we don't get to hear life a whole lot and I was just like you know I just said to myself it's like finally something like that is happening here and a few people do it don't get me wrong but it's it's rare so uh well, thank you i appreciate that so i just want to you know people listening out there from the nashville area make sure you, you go on facebook or, or, or just look for crook road <laughs> songs and see when the next one is happening go and check it out because it's certainly worth your time Something unexpected will happen. Oh yeah, it always does. It will be great. <laughs> it always does. It's uh, I've been doing them more and more as uh, I'm, you know, now that I'm living here full time, um, it allows me the opportunity to just you don't you know do two a month, um, and you know finding a cast of characters to play with and. I try to rotate it so it's not the same people all the time, um, but there's always overlap, you know. I'll get Kevin anytime, you know, um, I can. He's so damn busy. 
Uh, but, you know, it's like Billy Prine. He's doing them. When my wife's in town, she does them. Uh, all kinds of different people. Now, I'm hoping I can drag Eddie Floyd up someday from Alabama to yeah. do one. <laughs> for people who are not familiar with Billy Prine, that's John Prine's younger brother. Yes. And you mentioned your wife, Juliet Simmons, Danalo. Yeah. And your latest project is a record that you did with her called yep. Dream Girl. Can yep. you t tell me a little bit about, well, maybe peel back a little bit how you met your wife, because sometimes it can be tricky to to be not only married to a person, but also share that musical bond. But I guess on the other hand, it can also be very rewarding to be it's, able to do it's, that. It's, it's both probably, and you know, we figured it out really well. Um, we each have certain strengths that we, you know, we draw upon from each other within that environment. And um, I met her 2006 or 2007, you know, playing on the same circuit. And uh, we got together shortly after that. And I came in as producer on the, her first record halfway through. And we came down here and did some shows on that record and did more stuff in the Northeast when we were spending all our time in Boston. And then, I don't know, the Dream Girl record started to... I think she actually started writing the Dream Girl record before the first record was even out. In fact, I know so because uh, one of the songs on their fly was written before uh, Dream Girl was even out. And I think there was one or two other. Um, maybe The Abyss or maybe Until I Go. I, I can't remember for sure. Um, but that, that record was, you know, the, the, the basics were cut fairly quickly. Again, it was a situation where she and I sat in our living room and she sang and I banged the songs out on guitar and we, we sent uh, everybody acoustic demos and then walked in and, you know, we got sounds in about an hour and by the time it was like three and a half hours later, we had banged out seven basics, you know, having never really played any of the songs together and, and just kind of grabbed them. Came back a while later and did three more, and then that was the record, you know, for the core band. And sent the tracks down here to Tim Carter to add um, some banjo and fiddle and mandolin. And we had uh, our friend Tom West play piano in Boston. We used a string quartet from the Boston uh, Ballet as our string quartet on three songs. But the real, the real cool thing about the record is it's three-part harmony all the way through. Um, it's Juliet in the middle singing the melody, and then our friend Amber on top, and Anita on the lower harmony. And basically the entire record is completely focused on the songs and the three-part harmony and what that brings to, to the sound. Um, I think there's two guitar solos on the whole record. And there's no there's no real piano solos there's no no horn solos it's just everything is there to support um the songs and the singing and that was a real conscious decision the whole idea of that approach of i kind of see 
we haven't talked about him really yet, but Eddie Floyd. I kind of see the record I did on Eddie Floyd in 2008, which is two podcasts in itself, let me tell you. <laughs> the record on Eddie Floyd, and then the Charlie Rich record, and now Juliet's record coming out. They're kind of like a trifecta. They're like, it's a trio of records that, to me, probably is m more apparent than to other people, but it's an artistic arc as a producer, which kind of started with Eddie's record and then moved into Charlie Ridge's record and then comes, finishes up with Juliet's record coming out a couple months ago. Um, they're all really focused, even though the Charlie Rich record isn't so much in that vein, but they're, the real focus is the whole idea of Memphis and Nashville and country soul. And Muscle Shoals, you know, the that perfect triangle of music we all love so much. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I kind of see those those three records as, as, as a, obviously they're very distinct on their own, but as a body of work. And I don't know where I'm going next, but I'm starting to think about it and got some, some good ideas. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you mentioned Daddy Floyd's record, and I kind of, not safe the best for last, not saying anything, <laughs> but... Me being just a soul music fanatic, and I knew about that record long before I knew you you or you were associated with it. So I'm certainly curious how you got hooked up with Eddie and how that project came about. I started the idea roughly around summer of 2006. Um, I had played with him before in Memphis a year or two prior. Um, one of the clubs down there was having its 35th anniversary. And in fact, the club owner was our old manager with the Radio Kings, and Jay knew, still knows Eddie very well. And so we played together. And I had done the Mercy Brothers record um, and some singer-songwriter stuff in Boston. I'd done two singer-songwriter records in Norway, one of them which was huge I got a gold platinum and number one out of it um, but I was having a real hankering to get back to where it all really started for me which is blues and R&B and I was racking my brains like man who who man who should I cut a record on what should I do um, and it just kind of came to me out of the blue it's like well, Eddie Floyd hasn't got a record in a while. I know somebody that knows Eddie Floyd. He's not going to remember me from playing with me because he plays with so many people, but I'll be able to get a hold of him. And I did, and I called him up completely out of the blue, and of course he didn't remember me. And I introduced myself to him, and I said, I want to produce a record on you. And, uh, you know, it was full of bravado and all that stuff, and... I said, well, you know, I know you're playing in New York City next week, so I'm going to take the train down from Boston, and we can meet each other and hang out before the show and after the show. And the chemistry was instant. It was like we got that. We just went into that place. You know, we knew some of the same people. And we were referencing some of the same things. There were people who were there at the after show when we went out to dinner, they were like, wow, you guys just hit it off. And we did. But I still couldn't convince him to do it. <laughs> so 
So I went and saw him again in New York. And then I think it was Memphis. But the clincher was I was in London touring. And he was in London touring with the Bill Wyman's band. And we both had an off day. And I said, look, we've been dancing around this now for six months. Can we have dinner tonight? And can we really discuss this? Because if I really want to start next month, meaning January of 2007, I really want to start next month. I already had the guys in Boston all excited. Studio lined up, ready to go. And he still was really hemming and hawing. And I said, look, I don't want to cut and knock on wood. Well, good, because you can't do it anyhow. <laughs> um, I don't want to do this. I don't. I said, I, I don't want to try to make a record that sounds like or is anything like 1967, which he really, I think he really appreciated because I think so many people try to just, just go there. And, you know, and the one thing he said to me, he goes, well, you can't do it because you can't do it. And he said, even I can't do it because that was 1967. And this is 2007 we're talking about. It's a different world, different music, different everything. He said, don't, so don't ever try to do it because you can't, which I thought was pretty refreshing and nice to hear. But he was still, you know, we're halfway through dinner and. And I said to him, I said, look, okay, this, so this is what I want to do. I, one of the first songs I want to cut is I said, I don't know if you're going to remember this song, but I have it on some obscure record. And it was a demo that you cut with the Falcons in Detroit, where it's just piano and you guys sing it. And he looks at me <laughs> and I said, it's this tune called Since You've Been Gone. And he dropped his fork. And he said, how do you know about that? I said, well, I do. And, you know, but this is, I'm serious about wanting to do this. And it was that moment in that conversation, mentioning that song that just put it all in motion. And I said to him, I said, well, do you have any songs that you would want to cut? You know, any new stuff? And uh, he sent me a cassette with uh, some songs on it. And I picked two new songs. And then... Um, He said to me, he said, why don't you pick the rest? So I started thinking about it. It was like, well, you know, we're going to do that old Falcons demo. What else can we do that's going to be unique to this project that's just not rehashing stacks? So I started going through my records and looking at my records and I realized as I was especially looking through my Stax records, some of my favorite Stax tunes are songs that Eddie wrote but never recorded. Um, my favorite Sam and Dave song is uh, You Don't Know What You Mean to Me, you know, which Eddie wrote but never cut, you know. Um, to My Back Ain't Got No Bone uh, is another one. And so then with the power of the internet, in its, even in its infancy back then, I did a Google search and then I did a search in VMI and his name starts popping up as writer on these all these songs that 
some of them I had heard, obviously, but I didn't know that he was the writer. So then I was thinking, and I'm sitting there, and I go, wow. If you look at his body of work, it's the recorded history of soul music. So I started picking songs that maybe was something really obscure that he cut in Washington, D.C. in the early 60s, that Falcons tune, um, the Sam and Dave tune, the William Bell tune. Um, uh, what else is on that record? Uh, that song he wrote for Dorothy Moore. You know, all these different songs. And, and, was, and I put them all together. I'm like, wow, here it is. This is what it is. It's Eddie Floyd sings Eddie Floyd. But it's not anything anybody's ever heard Eddie Floyd do. And he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And, and, and then he said, There's, the only thing that we have to cut, because I didn't feel like it ever got its due in the day, and I want it to be the last song on the record, is Consider Me. And I said, fine, because it's one of my favorite songs that he cut back then. And I think it's probably his best vocal on the record. He really, he really, really, really just let it go, you know, which is a good thing because he only gave us two takes of everything. So <laughs> it's not like we had went through a bunch of vocals and comped them. It was like, that was it, you know. Did you record him with the band or was his contribution an overdub? It was an overdub um, because he was traveling a lot. Um, I was wrapped up in a bunch of different projects. So we cut, we cut the first half of the record, Basics, and I sent them to him, and he listened to him. He flew up. I picked him up at the airport one evening. We went out to dinner, dropped him at the hotel, picked him up the next day at noon, and we went into the studio he cut his vocals and we were on the way to dinner at like four o'clock and he caught a flight that night and flew back same thing happened when we did the second half of the vocals um we we cut the record in two stages the first half of the record was cut we didn't have a deal when we started the record um so I started chopping it to different places. A friend of mine in Memphis, Jay, got us in touch with Concord, and they had just reactivated Stacks. So Ducky and I, who co-produced the record with me, played drums on it. It was his studio in Boston, too. We flew to Memphis for the 50th anniversary show at the Orpheum. And the day before, we had a meeting with all the guys at Concord. And uh, we we all met in the hotel lobby, and John Burke, who's I think he's higher even higher up in the company now than he was at that point in time. He said, "Look, we don't we don't let's just go to lunch and talk about other stuff because we want to do the record. We don't have to have a discussion about doing the record. We want to do the record. When can you deliver it? And we'll go from there." Was that between the first and the second batch of vocal recordings? Yeah, first and first and second batch of actual even basic tracks. And so, there, I mean, there was really no discussion. He had heard the material, the first five, um, but they were just really in their infant stages. There was no horns on them yet, I don't think. I don't think there were any horns on them yet. There could have been, I don't know. It's kind of a blur. But it was definitely guitar, bass, drums, keys. 
and um, steel guitar, lap steel guitar, um, which we put through a Leslie on some stuff, you know, for texture. And it, <laughs> it was so funny. We were mixing the record. And, and Eddie was just like, make sure you, you, you use a lot of that trombone guitar. That's what, he, <laughs> that's what he called the lap steel, the trombone guitar. Um, so, and that was part of my whole idea. And it was kind of in keeping with the stacks, the aesthetic of they did things their own way, you know. Um, in fact, everybody did back then. But stacks, they did things the way they wanted to do them and whatnot. And to me adding a, a lap steel guitar on, on a on a soul record just it just made perfect sense um, and uh, yeah so that's I mean like I said it, it's two podcasts that so really go into the whole record and and all that but uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell um, unfortunately we only played one show with him because he was touring so much with uh, Blues Brothers and uh um, 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 uh, Bill Wyman we played the Long Beach Blues Festival and uh, yeah that was the only show we played with him and did you play some material off the record too or was the mainly greatest hit show <laughs> see, see at that point in time by the time we played the Long Beach Blues Festival he and I had known each other and the making of that record, we, we spent a lot of very close time together talking about the record and him. And I hung out with him a lot. And he told me a ton of great stories about stacks, things that I had never known. And, you know, little, just little tidbits of things that um, I think have come out more over these last 10 years that more people have written about stacks and whatnot. But so we got to be, we, you know, for a period of about 18 months, we were pretty close before I got really busy doing stuff. And then he was busy doing stuff and we kind of drifted apart and uh, we're back in contact now. And we're, I'm trying to figure out if we can do one more. Um, but so really, sorry, this is a long way of answering your question about Long Beach. Um, so he sent me a set list and we... He flew out from Atlanta. We flew from Boston. We met at the hotel. The guys went off and did something. And he and I were, were sitting in the hotel lobby having a glass of wine. And um, I was like, man, we got a brand new record out. The label is based here. Half of the guys at the top of the label are going to be there tomorrow. We got to play one song off the record. Then he looks at me and goes, those aren't Eddie Floyd songs. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, what, what in the world are you talking about? Those aren't Eddie Floyd songs. So I pulled out the set list and I said, hmm, Soul Man. I don't think that's an Eddie Floyd song. Hmm, sitting on the dock of the bay. That's an Eddie Floyd song. He got really mad at me. I started stuttering and sputtering and, and he goes, well, nobody knows those songs yet as Eddie Floyd songs. I said, well, that's a perfect reason to, to, to play in front of 10,000 people and play two songs off the new record. Refused to do it. So we ended up playing Big Bird and Knock on Wood and Soul Man <laughs> sitting on the dock of the bay. He gave Mark, who's one of my good friends in Boston who played bass on the record, two bass solos. I mean, it was a very strange show the way the whole thing <laughs> evolved um 
we kind of opened the show up with because uh, we had Steve playing lap steel with us. We opened the show up, uh, Santo and Johnny to uh, Sleepwalk. Yeah. So that's how the show started. You know, Eddie Floyd show started with Sleepwalk. Uh, and then I forget what we did next, but one of the more peculiar things too was we did uh, Never Had a Girl, you know, and we got into it and we did the first verse and the first chorus. And then he just started off on this tangent of rapping and kind of singing. And we never played another verse or another chorus. We just vamped on two chords for a, a good 10 minutes and he finally just signaled to end the song and I said <laughs> why I don't know I just felt like it <laughs> so it's a great experience you know he's 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 a lot of fun he's still got a 35 acre farm that he works in Montgomery Alabama and still a great voice yeah yeah I heard a I heard a clip the other day on Facebook and I was like wow he's gotta be 83 now somewhere in there maybe 84 and he still sings sounds great yeah, yeah he was he was you know he, he he was pretty sharp in the studio I mean he was a lot sharper than so many of the guys that I've worked with and adept at like Pro Tools especially you know we like I said we he only gave us two passes of, of each song and and we were listening to Consider Me and he's watching the waveforms go by and he's sitting right next to me and Ducky and he, and, he, and he points, he goes, that one right there. I want that one here at the end of the song. And uh, we were like, okay, yeah, cool, we'll do that. And we hadn't even thought about it, but he had remembered it when he had cut it and he was watching, waiting for it to come up. And we put it in where he wanted it and it was absolute genius. You know, he knew exactly what he wanted, where it was, and, and, and it was perfect. You know, so really smart dude. A lot of fun to hang out with. <laughs> we were out to dinner and uh, we went to this Italian restaurant and, uh, y you know, they brought out this huge bowl of lettuce, you know, salad that everybody for the table. And it's one of those places where the, the portions are just so enormous that you couldn't possibly eat it all in one sitting, let alone two or three. So we're, we're getting this food packed up to go back and, and, you know, Ducky's like, do you want to take, you know, take the salad with you back to your hotel room for later? And he looks at us and he goes, why? Ain't got no meat in it. <laughs> Real meat and potatoes guy. <laughs> Meatballs and sausage and pasta. So, yeah, I love him to death. He's such a good guy. Well, thank you so much for sharing this particular story and and the rest of what is your career oh well, I, I, th I can't thank you enough for having me on and letting me just I, I know I just rambled for for a while but well that's kind of what this is about True. you know we yeah. want to go down rabbit holes we want to uncover a few things that maybe have not been shared before too sure. so uh, to end this do you have anything coming up you're especially like proud about or you want to people to know about well Juliet's record came out at the end of last year I'm I'm really proud of that record I think it sounds great the concept is great we're going we've got tour dates coming up oh I don't know um, 
don't know, things are just gonna, you know, I just kind of let it roll on and see what happens, you know. We've got to wrap up Billy Prine's record, and I've got other stuff that I've been talking about doing, and, and I think there's going to be European touring involved. It's going to be, a, you know, going to be a busy year. Well, I wish you the best of luck with all of that, and thanks for being my guest today. Oh, thank you, Andres. I appreciate it very much. This was the 43rd episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. It was recorded at Crazy Chester Studio in Nashville. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast at iTunes or check it out on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn or Stitcher. That's it for today. Until next week.